Well, that was spectacular, wasn't it? Happy New Year, everybody. I know you thought you were done with Christmas and Advent and all of that, but not quite. In fact, I want to start our New Year Sunday with a quiz. What church holiday did we celebrate this weekend? Epiphany, very good. You, you read Pastor Ellis's blog undoubtedly, but good for you. The word epiphany means revelation or unveiling. It, it's an eye-opening discover, an aha. That's what epiphany means. But in the church calendar, epiphany is tied to the most misunderstood characters in the entire Christmas story. Who am I talking about? The wise men, or as my daughter Rachel used to call them when she was a little bit younger, the three wise guys. We remember them when we sang what we just sang to just now, the We Three Kings. Of course, we don't know how many there were. There might have been three. We don't know. We assume that there were three because of the three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they were not kings. They were magi. That's the word. It means wise men. They were pagan Persian astrologist who studied the skies because they believed that the stars, the heavens, controlled human destiny. And they must have been familiar with Jewish scripture because when they saw an unfamiliar star in the sky, they assumed that it was a heavenly announcement of the birth of a Jewish Messiah. And despite the cool nativity scenes that you have been putting away in this last week or so, which include wise men and even cooler camels, it didn't happen that way. Only the shepherds showed up that night in Bethlehem. According to uh, to Matthew, the Magi didn't arrive until later. In fact, as much as two years later. Why is that? Because they traveled from modern-day Iraq which is near Baghdad, about a 900-mile journey to get to Bethlehem. In other words, nearly nothing about the popular Christian culture assumptions about the Magi is correct. Nearly nothing. But here's what is true. They are hugely important to most of us. And by most of us, I would mean everyone here who is not Jewish, There there might be some who have Jewish background here, but my guess is that most of us are not because the Magi, they represent the Gentiles, those outsiders that the Jews thought were beyond God's love, beyond God's plan for them. And that's only because they forgot their own story. When God called Abram to be the father of the Jewish people, he promised that through his family, the Jewish family, through them, all nations of the world would be blessed, including us Gentiles. And now with the birth of Jesus, that promise was fulfilled. And God graciously invited the Magi, the outsiders, the Gentiles, to come and celebrate too. So that's what Epiphany represents, the eye-opening, the revelation, the arrival of the, of the Magi, and, and, the, and the revelation that God loves the whole world, including us non-Jews. But that story, that original revelation, did not come easily, did it? There was a long, arduous journey before the Magi could worship the child king with their gifts. And at the heart of that journey, at the heart of it, is captured one important word in today's reading. 
We've been journeying through what I call the gospel of Isaiah. Uh, for all of Advent, un, you know, uncommonly we've been in the Old Testament for our, all of our old uh, Advent texts. And this morning we come to perhaps one of the, the most magisterial of all the passages in the, in the prophet Isaiah. And I want you to listen for one word that jumps out and describes this, this epiphany experience that the kings uh, shared. We're in Isaiah chapter 40. If you want to turn with me in your Holly Biblies, Isaiah chapter 40, we'll start with verse 27. This is Isaiah speaking to the Jewish people when he opens. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the majestic word of the Lord. So did you, did you see the word? For three months we have heard a chant repeated over and over again around the world. From the river to the sea. And you know what that means, right? The river is the Jordan the sea is the Mediterranean, and this is the slogan of those who want to wipe out the nation of Israel and repopulate it with non-Jews. That is what the, this slogan means, make no mistake about it. The utter destruction of the Jewish state. Hamas, terrorists, and their proxies will settle for nothing less. But it wouldn't be the first time. That's what happened in 586 B.C. In that case, it was the Babylonians who invaded Israel, who destroyed their walls, burned down their temple, carried off their best and their brightest into captivity 900 miles away, exactly as Isaiah had predicted they would 200 years earlier. But in chapter 40, Isaiah's tone changes. It goes from warning that this is going to happen to anticipating that it has happened, and it becomes a words of comfort. He's looking ahead to the time when the people of Israel are carried off into exile. They are languishing there. They long to return home. They've given up hope. They've lost everything that mattered to them. And they are sure that God has forgotten them. Any of you in that place right now? Any of you feel like you've been forsaken by the Lord, forgotten by the Lord in the circumstances of your life? This is speaking to you too. It starts out in verse 27, when, when, and that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. He says, he's talking to the Jewish people when he says, why do you say, you Jews? Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord? Why do you say that? That my right has been disregarded by my God. The Jews had come to believe that God no longer saw them. Or if he saw them, he was too exhausted to deal with them anymore like a, a parent exhausted with taking care of their children. And Isaiah says, not so fast. Don't you dare give up, he says. 
And he goes on with these sweet words. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. As weary as you might be, Isaiah says, Yahweh never grows weary, never faints. As confusing as you might find your present circumstances, Yahweh's understanding is unsearchable. And then comes the most precious of the promises, maybe in all of Isaiah. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. The other day we were over at my folks' house. We were outside, and I heard the unmistakable cry of the bald eagle. And I looked up into the trees to find him. He was hidden somewhere in the greenery. But I just kept looking. I said, watch, watch. We know he's there. And suddenly he took off. You could almost hear the wings. And he headed right off into the sun. They shall mount up with wings like the eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. A few weeks ago, Cindy and I returned from a golf trip. And the airport was a zoo. And so we had our son Cooper pick us up at the light rail station. That's a little hint for you. Don't tell anyone outside of this church. That's just for you. And so we, but we got there. We hauled our stuff there. The only problem was the elevator was broken. Which meant that we would have to haul our bags and our clubs down three flights of stairs. But my fit young son was there to meet us, and he came bounding up the stairs. He took both golf bags and their travel bags in hand and carried them down the three flights effortlessly like it was nothing. That's the energy of youth. I hate them. But Isaiah says there comes a time when even their boundless energy will be depleted. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. And his point is obviously if even the young wear out, how much more the rest of us who aren't so young. The other day, Cindy and I took a truckload of yard waste to the dump. I swear, I thought I would never finish dragging that stuff out of the back of the truck. And Cindy noticed it too. We, we realized we don't have the energy we used to. And there are many of you out there who might be chuckling. But of course, the reality strikes all of us at some point in deeper and way more significant ways. My dad stumbled and fell this week. He hit his head on the end table and split it open pretty badly. It is very tough for me to see a a man who was a great athlete in his prime, who is spent. Two weeks ago, while most of us were preparing for Christmas, I visited a rest home to stand vigil with two daughters who were waiting for their mom to die. And she was unresponsive, and I stroked her hair, and I read scripture, and I prayed with her and over her and gave her permission to go. And a few days later, she was gone. 97 years old, it was a good run, but she was spent. But it's not just the old people who are spent. Last week, I received an email with an article that was written by a young man who is a son of this church, and he and his wife had lost their 18-month-old baby. 
And he spoke of the pain of that, the depleting pain of that, of returning to worship, especially at Christmas time. They are drained emotionally and spiritually and physically. They are utterly spent. I have a friend who's been out of work, and it's been a while, and it's wearing on him. And the last time I talked to him, he was pretty beaten up. He's spent. Could you add your story to theirs? We stand on the threshold of a new year. Many of us do so with excitement and anticipation. But there are some here who are holding on for dear life, who are spent, worn out and weary, and feeling like you have nothing left. The holidays did not energize you. They innervated you. They sapped you. So how can we who are just worn out find new life and hope? And even those who are full of energy right now, we know it's only a matter of time before something kicks us in the teeth. That's life. Where will we find new life when that happens? I told you that the epic journey of the Magi really is captured in one word in Isaiah's prophecy. I wonder if you noticed that word. Any idea what it might be, what that word is? Yes. Nice job, Mom. (laughs) Wait. Those who wait for the Lord. Would you say that with me? Those who wait for the Lord. This word is the key to the entire promise that Isaiah makes here. The word wait. Now, when we see the word wait, we think this. Here's a picture I took the other day. I got up early, and uh, that's the view from my study. And I was looking out, and there sat my friend the seagull. He is there every morning. He, I get up before the sun rises, and he's already sitting on that post. I don't know if it's the same seagull. I think it is. I think he's the bully seagull. I think he takes his perch before anyone else, and he will stay there for hours. I counted the hours. Four hours on Monday, that seagull was still sitting there by the time I was done, perched and waiting and waiting and waiting. That is not what this Hebrew word means. The word wait in this passage has this meaning. It means to actively search, to look with eagerness, to anticipate. It is not a passive word. It is an active word. Not sitting, waiting, but searching. They who wait for the Lord really means they who actively search, who who look for, who look expectantly for the Lord, just like the Magi did on a journey of discovery. And just like my daughter Rachel did in a story that I've shared before, but it is one of my all-time favorites. It was back in Thanksgiving of 2004. Cindy's parents were up from Salt Lake City to be with us. And one night I was sitting in my recliner when suddenly Rachel burst in as only Rachel could enter a room. She burst in and she said, guess what? Grandpa lost the diamond from his wedding ring, and he doesn't know how long it's been missing or where he lost it. We've been looking all over, but we can't find it anywhere. And I said something very empathetic like, oh, that's too bad. (laughs) And Rachel left, and do you know what I did next? Nothing. I just sat there. I knew that I ought to go help look for this lost diamond, but what's the point? Boyd had no idea where he'd lost it. He'd been hunting in eastern Washington, 
As far as we knew, that diamond was sitting in a newly mown wheat field near Othello. It was, to my mind, the definition of pointless. So I just sat in my recliner while others were scurrying about in what I considered to be their fruitless, pointless, hopeless search for that diamond. And 20 minutes later, still ensconced in my comfy chair, the front door flew open and the Christmas bells that were hanging on the front door knob rang and Rachel rushed in breathlessly shouting, I found it! I found it! She rushed over to me and she opened her hand and showed me and sure enough there it was. Daddy, I found Grandpa's diamond. I was flabbergasted. I said, what? How in the world did you do that? And she said, well, after we looked around in the house, I remember I saw Grandpa playing with his dog in the driveway. So I went out to look there. Okay, finding a single diamond in a driveway. That would be pretty amazing, wouldn't you agree? How about this? Our driveway was gravel. 8,000 square feet of gravel. I brought in nine small dump truck loads that summer to gravel that driveway. Is that tough enough? So a gravel driveway, 8,000 square feet of it, and it was pitch black because this was 9.15 at night. So one diamond on a gravel driveway in the darkness. How did she do it? Well, my brilliant 11-year-old figured a diamond would sparkle in the light. And so armed with a flashlight, she went out and she got down on the gravel and she flashed the light until she saw something sparkle. The thought of Rachel out there in the black of night searching for a tiny diamond in a gravel driveway and finding it. I couldn't believe it. I shook my head. I told her I was proud of her. I gave her a big hug and kiss. And then she pulled back and said, I'll bet this one makes it into a sermon. <laughs> And it did, several times. That is what wait means in this passage. They who wait doesn't mean they who sit in their recliner and do nothing. They who wait means looking, searching, seeking until they find what they long to find. And in this case, it meant those who were weary, worn out, utterly spent, hopeless, would keep looking for the Lord until they found what they were looking for, desperate for, new power, new strength, new vitality, new hope, new life. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As I said, we don't know how many magi actually showed up in Bethlehem. Perhaps there were three. But who knows? But for me, this raises another question. Where were the others? There were thousands of astrologers in Persia at the time. Thousands of men who studied the stars and ancient religions. Surely there were others who saw this unfamiliar star rising in the sky. Surely there were others who were familiar with the prophecies that foretold the birth of a child king. Where were they? Why didn't they make the journey too? Why didn't they go looking for the treasure? Because they were more like me than they were like Rachel. Because they were too jaded 
to undertake the search. Because the prospect of lonely effort over months of nights looking for something twinkling in the darkness seemed ridiculous to them, impossible. And so the other Magi stayed home with their royal bottoms glued to their Persian recliners while their handful of friends went on a treasure hunt and found the most precious treasure ever discovered. How would it change your life if this was the year you really waited for the Lord in the spirit of this passage? What would it mean if you really look for an epiphany of the Lord in 2024 and didn't just sit on your keisters? What would it mean to you if weekly worship became a priority instead of an option depending upon what else is available? What would it mean to you if you made good on your promise to read the Bible every single day? What would it mean if you took Pastor Julie's challenge to pray daily in the morning and the evening, perhaps even kneeling down at your bed to start your day of prayer? What would it mean if you sought out a life group and began to share your life with others who are seeking after God? That's what it means for you to wait for the Lord. Getting off your spiritual behinds and getting serious about looking for the way that God wants to reveal himself to you in your life, in your work, in your family, in your school. What about it? Will 2024 be the year of your epiphanies? I've always wanted to preach a sermon series that I would entitle The Big Butts of the Bible. My colleagues wouldn't let me do it. I, I've tried it several times and I said, that will not fly but this is one of the biggest buts in the Bible. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Lord, we ask for an epiphany this year. We ask for new life. We've been praying for revival. That's really what this is, a new revelation of you, a new discovery of you, your love, your purpose, your calling upon us. Spare us from the humdrum approach to faith that is so often characterizes our lives. Spare us from religious habit. Would you stir in, in our hearts the, the longing to learn more of you, to find more of you, to seek more of you, and to expect an epiphany, an eye-opening, aha, there you are. I pray for that for each of us this day. For those who've known you forever, Lord, I pray that it would be a newfound discovery of love and devotion. For those who don't know you well or maybe don't know you at all, may this be their epiphany year when suddenly you are revealed to them in a power that they didn't know existed. This is the work that only you can do by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray for an epiphany. In Jesus' name, amen. and fountain more and more.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.